Good morning. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Acts, chapter 1. As most of you know, our brother Don has taken us on a nice uh, helicopter tour over the forest of the book of Acts. We've had a four-week overview, excellent overview. And our pilot has landed his craft, and now we're going to get out and start walking around and looking at the trees. Verse by verse. Starting in verse 1, we'll read the first three verses to begin with here. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to to the kingdom of God. All right, we're going to get right down to it. We're going to look at the very first words here. And the very first words are the title of the book. Which is? Yeah, the the Acts of the Apostles. You you think uh, that's the title of the book, do you? How many know that uh, the titles of the books of the Bible were not part of the original manuscripts? Either you're really uh, shy or you just learned something new. Yeah, uh, over the centuries, the translators and whatnot have saw fit to come up with the titles themselves. So Genesis is not the title of Genesis. In fact, it's a Greek word that was come up with by the um, translators of the Septuagint back about 300 B.C. So the reason I happen to choose this one to uh, jump on, I'm sorry, is because I don't like the title. And the reason I don't like the title is because, first of all, it was made by men. Okay, this was not an inspired title. Really, this book that we're going to be studying and that we've already started with Don could be better titled either the acts of jesus christ or the acts of the holy spirit now that doesn't mean that the apostles and the other believers are bystanders certainly they played a very active part but um we need to go back to matthew 16 where jesus said i will build my church now when was he talking about do you think when when do you think he he did or is doing that now and how about in this book yeah he's building his church and the apostles have the marvelous privilege of co-laboring with him in it but he is the one he said i will build my church he didn't say we will build my church he said i will build my church and praise god he's still continuing to do so in fact that's his number one project did you know that aside from other uh, small things like upholding all things by the word of his power you know No, I'm serious. His number one project. Did you know that? Think about it. And I want you to think about it as we're looking at the uh, passage this morning. His number one project is building his church. If that's the case, maybe it ought to have a high priority in my life too. What do you think? It was certainly was true of the early believers. Okay, well, we saw the introduction and you don't have to know who Theophilus is. It's not important probably some greek guy that luke was writing to 
Um, the same one that Luke wrote the, uh, the Gospel of Luke to. But uh, as I said, uh, you might want to remember that the name of the book is better, The Acts of the Lord Jesus. I also said The Acts of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is mentioned more in the book of Acts than any other book in the Bible. And particularly, I love the book of Acts because unsaved people and even young believers tend to make the mistake of thinking of the Holy Spirit as a force, not a person, or not as God. Let me say plainly, God the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. He is a person, just as God the Son is a person, God the Father is a person. There is one God, three persons, co-equal as God. Okay? And the book of Acts is great for that. I'll just uh, suggest a, a Bible study. I'll do this as we go through this. Don uh, gave us a good way of uh, doing an overview of the book. We're now going to go verse by verse, but there are so many ways to study God's word. One of the ways to study the book of Acts is just to go through and focus on the Holy Spirit. And you'll be amazed at what a major player he is. And the two things that I talked about, his personality and his deity, are all over the book of Acts. He is constantly speaking, for example. I love it. Uh, I'll just pick three examples and then we'll, and then we'll get back to it here. Uh, first of all, in the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, remember they sold a plot of land. You know, you know the story. And they lied. They, they gave part of the money to the church and kept back some for themselves. It's interesting. God didn't complain about them keeping the money back. He complained about them lying. And, uh, you know, Peter said, you sell for so much. And they said, yeah, yeah. And they lied and they died. God was that serious. He wanted to make it clear up front that his church is to be holy. And it's interesting that when they were confronted by Peter, if you remember, first he said, you've lied to God. And then later he said, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is God. Also, he's a person. He was lied to. So there in that passage, you have his personality and his deity. Later, it's wonderful when uh, Paul is called to uh, his uh, life as a missionary, traveling throughout Asia and then later uh, Europe. It's the Holy Spirit who does it. Remember that? It says, when they were praying and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, and listen to what he says, set apart for me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work that I have for them to do. Isn't that cool? That's a person. That's God speaking. By the way, that has to be God because all over the epistles, uh, Paul said that he was called to his ministry by whom? God. The Holy Spirit says there, I have called him for the work I have for him to do. That's wonderful. And then finally later, uh, we glanced at it when uh, Don was doing his overview, when Paul had exhausted uh, his preaching in, in Turkey in Asia Minor and didn't know where to go, it kept saying the Holy Spirit hindered him. And then finally, he was led, it says, by the Lord into Greece. Again, the personality and the deity of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Um, <clears throat> verse uh, 3 when you, when you study the Bible, again, you remember Don said, when you're doing an overview, the best way to do it is to read it and then read it and then read it again and read it again, particularly for an overview. But when you do a verse by verse, uh, the best way to do that is to read it and then read it and read it again and read it again. And as you do that, God will begin to show you things that you didn't see the first time. 
It's wonderful. Can you relate to that as a believer, brother, sister? Isn't that great? We just sang precious holy Bible. Now, isn't that true? I love the word of God. And in this verse, there are so many wonderful little nuggets here uh, that are waiting to be discovered. For example, it, it says in, in such simple language, talking about the Lord Jesus, to whom also he presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. You realize what that's saying? Think about it. It's saying he presented himself alive after he was dead. You ever met anybody who could say that? I was dead. Huh? Jesus says it. He says it in Revelation. He says, I am he who was dead, but behold, I live forevermore. Hallelujah. That's my savior. He's been through death. He's been there. I have nothing to fear. He's been where I'm going to go. I'm going to die. Oh, it'll be so glad to get rid of this failing body. I found out how failing it is yesterday out on the baseball diamond with my son. And when I pass through death, I'm going to dispose of this thing and he's going to give me a new one, one that's fit for heaven. I serve a risen, living Savior. So right there, that, think about what that's saying. Presented himself alive after his suffering, after his death. He was alive, but praise God, he's alive now. He was dead. And it says uh, very uh, succinctly three big words here on the certainty of the resurrection. First of all, it says by proofs, evidences. Not just singular, many evidences from uh, cooking for them to eating with them, walking with them, talking with them. In fact, spending 40 days, it says, with them. That's pretty good, huh? Isn't that great? 40, a, a month and uh, a little over a week with them. But then it says, not just proofs, it says infallible proofs. We need to be convinced here. Infallible proofs, but not just infallible proofs. Many infallible proofs proofs jesus is risen from the dead that's what he's saying and during that time it says simply that he was speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of god wouldn't it have been great to be a fly on the wall there to listen to that think about it when we approach this now think about what's going on with new eyes don't go oh yeah i know all about acts one i've read that six times think about it put yourself in their shoes what has just happened god the son became a man died on the cross of calvary paid for the sins of the world has been raised from the dead and nobody knows about it but the disciples think about it the greatest event in the history of the universe would you agree with me on that can you think of something greater raise your hand jesus christ god the son died for the sins of the world it's just happened how many people know that nobody just that it's this is where the disciples learned it right here during that time with jesus imagine what it must have been for them as they had their eyes open they realized what had just happened huh man so and now you see before the cross it, it was veiled it was hidden what he was going to do there had to be hidden from the enemies of god or they wouldn't have walked into it the way they did but now that it's done the truth can be told. In fact, the truth must be told. And that's what Jesus is preparing them to do. <clears throat> Boy, talk about treasure and earthen vessels, huh? Got this precious message that they alone now uh, are the repository of. So here we have it. Christ.
has opened heaven for anyone to enter who is willing to trust him by faith. All they need to do is hear about it. So that's, one, that's what's on his heart. And there are three obstacles to that. And the first one we just mentioned uh, about that message. Getting out. First one, nobody knows. Some, somebody's going to have to go around and, 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 and tell it. Secondly, most people don't care. The time t- changed. Unfortunately not. Third, many will oppose the spread of the message, often with violence. So those are the obstacles. But the stage is set now. This message must be delivered in spite of the obstacles. And uh, as an illustration, I'm going to use the idea of a war. A spiritual war really is about to begin here. The disciples don't know that. Jesus does. They're going to find out. It's the war is still going on. It's a spiritual war. It's the longest war in history. And the stakes are infinitely higher than those in any war. World War One, two, war on terror, Cold War, you name it. Because the stakes are the souls of men, the eternal souls of men and women. And it's going on right now. You know, the battle's going on right now in this room. Do you know that? I know I, I haven't been a Christian uh, for my youth. I got saved when I was uh, 24 years old. And I remember a couple of times, that was about the only time I ever went to church sitting there. And I could hardly wait until that guy up front got done talking so I could go out and have fun. It's a battle. It's a battle for the souls of men. God wants us to pay attention to his word. He wants to speak to you. And the devil wants to do everything he can to keep you from listening. It's still going on. It's going on right now as I speak. There's a battle. There's a struggle. You might even be, maybe you realize it right now in your heart, you know? Part of you wants to listen and part of you wants to say, nah, there's a talking head up there, you know? You're, you're being fought over. Don't let the devil win. Well, in a few words here, uh, Jesus is going to outline his strategy in this upcoming conflict. Uh, let's read verse 4. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. A couple of things here. First of all, he makes it clear that the bringers of the message of the gospel, and this is amazing, is to be ordinary people. You'd think it should be somebody like angels, right? Or maybe God himself, the one to be entrusted with his great message that we were talking about, the death of Christ for the sins of men. He says, you shall be witnesses, just fishermen, a tax gatherer, you know, just ordinary folk like you and me. Isn't that wonderful? In the plan of God, he, whenever uh, he does something, he likes to use weakness to get it done. That's the wisdom of God. That's the greatness of God. You know, if we were God, we'd, we'd, you know, it'd be a big, mighty display of power and greatness, you know, blowing people away. Starting from the very beginning of the Bible, you see he likes to use weak things 
because then you can see his greatness shining through it's wonderful the cross think about it how did he open heaven that's not a small thing by the way opening heaven to sinners is it what did he use death he used death to do it can you think of anything more helpless and weak than death it says in hebrews that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death that is the devil it's wonderful an ignominious death death of a criminal someone who was scorned and despised and hated and with that death he opened heaven for you and me that's man that's great that's why paul exclaims at the end of romans 11 all the wisdom of god the mercy of god he's wonderful and now it comes to the the act has been done heaven is opened and to get the word out he's just going to use ordinary vanilla flavored people like you and me to do it i think that's great now obviously he's not going to take us as we are we couldn't do it without a little help so there's a secret weapon here and, and jesus talks about it he says you're going to receive power when the holy spirit when you're baptized with the holy spirit by the way uh again when you read these things try to think it through think about what it must have been like the devil could never second guess the lord all the way up to the cross he had no idea what he was doing he was trying to attack jesus front way, front ways and sideways trying to get him to undo whatever he was up to the devil didn't know and it wasn't until when the devil thought he'd walked into his trap and the cross was over and jesus was raised from the dead that the devil found out that he'd opened heaven right under his very own very nose isn't that great that's the way god is and now he's god is ready now for the next project which is to get the word out to people that heaven is open and the devil still doesn't know what he's up to he doesn't know how he's going to do it he's not going to find out until the day of pentecost which is about a week from now by the way 40 days pentecost is 50 days after the passover it's about a week jesus says a few days from now and i can just see you know the devil trying to figure out what what's going on you know what's he going to do how's he going to do it and it's so wonderful you wonder why why does he make them wait well there i think there are many reasons for waiting until the day of pentecost number one um, there's going to be a lot of people from all over the roman empire jews coming from everywhere for that holiday you, you have the passover on the jewish calendar and then there's a period called the feast of weeks it's seven weeks long 49 days and it's and it took place in those days during the wheat and the and the barley harvest the grain harvest it was a time of celebration of joy and it was all capped off with this last day the 50th day penta you know pentecost that means five right pentecost that was the big wingding that was the real big day and everybody would go to jerusalem there and celebrate it this is so cool the way god did this god wants to get it he wants to get a he wants to fire the first salvo in the battle if you will and make it good so what does he do he has these few weak disciples suddenly start speaking in the foreign language of all the visitors that are there sharing the gospel three thousand of them get saved and all of a sudden their forces have been multiplied by a factor of 26. isn't that cool all of a sudden the devil's got in his hands 3,120 disciples running loose talking about Jesus before he's even gotten out of the corner. I love it. And the great thing is, they're going to go back home, most of them. You know, some of them are resident in Jerusalem. Already, he's spreading the gospel all over the known world. Isn't that great? Man, God is so wonderful. 
Uh, besides that, uh, there's something very important here. There's a prophecy. First of all, Jesus says, you shall be. That's a prophecy. You shall be witnesses to me, isn't it? And it's also a certain promise. He doesn't say you may. I hope you will. He says, you shall be witnesses of me. Starting in Jerusalem and expanding all the way out to the ends of the earth. Isn't that great? He will win the victory. Okay, uh, we need to say a word. Now that the subject of baptism of the Holy Spirit has come up, we need to say a word about this so everybody's clear about what God is talking about here. It's such a misunderstood subject. Uh, a lot of groups will take this phrase, for example, of waiting. In the old King James, Jesus says you need to tarry. And they come up with a doctrine called tarrying for the Holy Spirit. In other words, you have to wait around after you get saved and uh, wait for the Holy Spirit to come to you. That's not biblical. So what is baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, let's start with the word. Baptism, I think you, most of you know, it's not an English word. It actually comes from the Greek, baptizo. It's just a transliteration of the original word. And the word means to dip or to place into. That's it. Real simple word. And baptism of the Holy Spirit, first of all, from the rest of Scripture we know, takes place the moment you're saved. Okay? If you're a Christian, you have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. You don't have to go around looking for him or waiting for him. All right? And at the moment you're saved, many other things happen. Uh, we are baptized into Christ. We are placed into him. We are baptized into the body of Christ. We're, when we are baptized into Christ, we are baptized into his death, Romans 6. Placed into. It's a good thing we're placed into Christ because it's in Christ well, we have all of our blessings. Okay, the point is baptism of the Holy Spirit, being baptized with the Holy Spirit, the spiritual baptism takes place the moment you believe the gospel. You have nothing to do with it. God does it. Okay? And, and it's always spoken of in the past tense when, when God is speaking to believers. Now, it's kind of an unusual situation here with these believers because they're the first believers and God does it all at once. I don't really think they all suddenly believed on the day of Pentecost. Okay, but this is the beginning of the church, so God's free to do something a little different this time. Okay, but from here on out, the pattern is the moment you believe, you're baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, on the other hand, we're going to see a phrase throughout the book of Acts, and it's in the epistles as well, being filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, we're going to see it in the very next chapter. So let's be clear on what that means right now. First of all, we hear the word filled. What do we think of? What do you think of a container? You know, you're filling it up with something. No. The best picture of it comes really from Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul writes, do not be drunk with wine. There's the contrasting part. But be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ah. Now, we know what it means to be drunk with wine. I don't experientially praise God. I don't know. I did a lot of other stuff, but I never got drunk. But I've seen it. And you know what it means to be drunk with wine, right? Under the influence, right, Tom? DUI. It means you're not under control anymore. Something or someone else is in control, and it's the alcohol. <laughs> you're not speaking. You're not acting. It's the booze that's speaking and acting when you're drunk. Kind of embarrassing, isn't it? But you're surrendering control to a substance. That's what being drunk with wine means. Ah, light goes on, filled with the Spirit, in contrast. That's what it is. Be controlled. 
surrender yourself to the control of the Holy Spirit. It's that simple. That's what it means. And it's a choice. Baptism was once when you were saved. Praise God forever. Can't be undone. Filling is a command and it's your choice and it's my choice as believers to be filled or not. It's a command. And so it doesn't happen automatically and it probably happens many times in the typical life, typical life of a believer. Should be all the time. It was with the Lord Jesus Christ. So there we go. You got, are we clear on that? Baptism of the Holy Spirit happens the moment you're saved when uh, you're placed in the body of Christ. And filling of the Holy Spirit is a command which we must obey to allow him to uh, rule our lives. And we're going to see that a lot here in the book of Acts. Okay. Um, now, uh, before we go on, just let me say, that the ba- there's a battle here. I want you to keep that in mind as we go through this. Not only this passage, but throughout the book, there's a developing war going on here. And the devil is, is constantly going to be adjusting. He's learning as he goes. And he's going to change his tactics as he learns more what God is up to and how he operates. The interesting thing is that uh, you're going to see he begins with the most obvious tactic to try to fight God. And that's a frontal attack. Head on. Persecution. That's the first obvious choice, right? Yes? You following me here? Problem is it doesn't work very well. <laughs> it's kind of like the cross. He ends up really cooperating with God. Because uh, in the book of Acts, whenever there's persecution, really the church is strengthened. And the believers scatter, and wherever they go, what do they do? Yeah, they preach Christ. <laughs> now, it's not that it's totally um, effortless. It'll intimidate a lot of people, and so he still uses it a lot. But he's come up with uh, better tactics as he's learned over the years. Um, just on those lines, by the way, uh, one of my first lessons on how persecution tends to strengthen the church rather than weaken it was when I was a young believer at uh, Fairhaven Bible Chapel and we had a missionary from Russia and he gave a talk and it was really, it was packed, it was after breaking the bread and the the building was packed that night because you don't get missionaries from Russia in very often. This was before the, you know, fall of the uh, Iron Wall and all that stuff, uh, Iron Curtain. Uh, anyway, you could tell from the questions and so on uh, that the, the stereotypical picture of the believers sitting there that night was, you know, these few Russian believers kind of cowering in a corner with maybe a candle to warm them two or three at a time, you know, just barely hanging in there. And you could tell the missionary was sensing that. And so he opened up and he explained the, the church in Russia was strong. In fact, he went on to say they were praying for us. Boy, you talk about putting us in our place. He said, you know what? They're they're strong believers over there. You don't need to worry about that. You need to worry about yourselves. We're praying for you guys that while you're sitting over here all fat, dumb, and happy, that you don't get so distracted with the world that you forget to preach Jesus. Boy, was that ever a rebuke, huh? And you see it in the book of Acts. Persecution's a good thing. (laughs) Suffering for Jesus is a good thing. Makes you healthy. And it sorts out the sheep from the goats, you know. Later on in the book of Acts, there's a wonderful phrase. When it's clear, man, you don't mess around with, uh, with God here. It says, no man dare join himself to them. Isn't that interesting? People didn't just come forward and make false professions at the drop of a hat. You had to count the cost to become a Christian, man. Keeps the church healthy. Now, the devil's learned he's got better tactics that he uses. He, he still uses that, but... 
uh, the two biggies, and you're going to see them start here in the book of Acts. One is false doctrine, false teachers. In particular, the Judaizers, you see them here in the book of Acts. Uh, he, he brings in those who have a message that sounds similar to the gospel. It's great, it, but it's a false message. It's another gospel. It's a lie. And he's able to pull people off by doing that. Uh, the interesting thing is that no matter uh, what the cult or what the group, starting with the Judaizers right through the cults to this day, the message that he has, the false message, tends to boil down to one thing. You're saved by works. There's something you do to save yourself, thus nullifying the cross of Christ. But uh, his, probably his best uh, weapon that he's developed and he's really honed it down he's really getting quite good at using this one is just false regular old christians people who talk about jesus they read the bible they pray but there's something that's never happened in their life it's the word that P uh, peter uses that we're going to see next week at the end of his sermon when uh they're all shook up by his message about who jesus really is and they say men and brethren what shall we do and peter says what repent repent turn away from your sin and turn to god and as we've been seeing in the road to emmaus that's not just a change of mind if you really change your mind your life's going to change and you got people running around that say they're christians and they uh they uh, talk about jesus but they're not christians you know jesus anticipated this even before here didn't he way back in the gospels he said what was going to happen he talked about uh the farmer that had a field of wheat and it says his enemy went in and sowed weeds and they looked just like the wheat that's what he's talking about uh he talked about um a mustard seed and he said that mustard seed tiny seed it's the smallest seed one of the smallest seeds you can find and when it grows it, it forms a bush but jesus said the mustard seed the kingdom of god is like a mustard seed and it's going to spring up make a great tree and the birds of the air are going to come and rest in it the funny thing is you read commentators on that and they say oh this is a picture of the growth of the church and spreading the gospel everywhere wrong <laughs> it's a picture of the uh, abnormal growth of professing christendom which we're living with today it's funny just this last week i was uh, i ran across a quote satan's greatest ploy and we have it in our midst today particularly in the united states is the mega church the mega church they might talk about jesus um they tend to be entertaining they go out and they do surveys to find out what do people want from a church and they do it isn't that good let's redesign the church you know you got it i mean the classic line is you can't be stodgy and be stuck in the book of acts you got to change with the times man right and so the big thing of course is uh you know rock bands i mean good ones great singers great vocalists drama i mean actors that could win academy awards people now they go to these mega churches thousands of people not the same thousand thousands every week by the way you know whenever they feel like it they go and man they're having a blast when they get out of there it's like getting out of a movie they've been entertained you know what there's something wrong with this picture it's not the way god planned it Anyway, the quote was this. Today, there are about 1,210 megachurches in the United States who have 
greater than 2,000 weekly attendees. You, you, you multiply that out, you're talking about 2,500,000 people. That's, that's a lot of people accounted for on Sunday, huh? That's double the number from just five years ago. Sounds like a mustard seed growing into a tree, doesn't it? Boy, I've said this before. You know, uh, when the Christians first started making evangelistic movies like Lake Great Planet Earth and so on, and they try to portray the end times back in the uh, 70s, maybe the 60s, they'd always uh, portray um, the, the world becoming in chaos because all of a sudden the Christians are all gone. Uh-uh. uh-uh. Do you know where these mega churches are going to be after the rapture? Yeah. Do you know what they're going to do the Sunday after the rapture? Yeah. They're going to open their doors just like normal. And the greater than 2,000 people are going to come right on in and be entertained just like usual. So you need to rethink the end times. We're already there. Don quoted uh, the description of the church of Laodicea last week there are three big passages in the bible that paint the end times as being just like we're in right now that is professing christians not real christians but mega church christians you know or uh christians who haven't repented who will talk about jesus and they'll talk about the bible but they don't know the lord that's called the falling away the apostasy second thessalonians he says that's going to happen and then after that happens, he says, the man of sin will be revealed and we're going to be gone, the real believers. In this room, you know, I, think about it. You think everybody in this room is going to be taken up from the rapture, which, by the way, could happen any moment. Or you think there might be some left behind. What about those that are going to be left behind? What are they going to do next Sunday? Think about it. Well, the other passage is... Uh, uh, Laodicea the Revelation 3 passage um, Don wrote where the people in the in the church I use quotes say um, you know I'm, I'm fat dumb and happy I have lots of money I have need of nothing that's the line that's used and Jesus says you need to come to me and realize that you're poor miserable blind and naked they can't they don't see that they think they're okay that's the that's the church that's the professing church isn't that what it is today man the one that really describes it when you read it you're reading along and you think he's talking about people of the world until you realize he's talking about the professing church it's second timothy three men will be listen to this this is this is professing christians lovers of themselves lovers of money lovers of pleasure isn't that great they're lovers lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of god having a form of godliness the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will, I love this, heap up for themselves teachers, lots of them. And they will turn their ears away from the truth. If that doesn't sound like 2007, I don't know what does. There it is. So that's, that's Satan's tactic. And it's really coming to fruit today, I believe. But, Please understand, along the way, the Lord Jesus Christ, right under his nose, is one by one, snatched out. Uh, brands is from the burning. People who can go to heaven. They're sinners deserving hell. 
and they're going to go to heaven clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Isn't that great? What a wonderful God. What a wonderful Savior. Okay, uh, well, besides all these, quote, problems, now that we're peeling back the veil, there's another one you need to realize here, as we, and, it, and it comes out really in the passage that we just read, <clears throat> and it's the starting point where Jesus began. What are the disciples currently? There's 120 of them, by the way. We're given that number a little bit later. What are they? What ethnic group? They're Jews. That's right. Now, we sit here today, we're mostly Gentiles. Noad's not here, right? Noad, I don't see Noad. I guess we're all Gentiles. Uh, and we're, we take it for granted, you know. Yeah, the church, oh yeah, that's Gentiles, you know. Well, it didn't start that way. They were all Jews. And they hated Gentiles. Even Peter, yeah. They, they just the thought of going to a Gentile's house was just abhorrent to them. You, well, when we get to Peter going to Cornelius, you'll find out. He fought it tooth and nail. And God has got to take the only believers he's got, which is all Jews, from that place of thinking Jews, Israel, Messiah, uh, the kingdom ruling the earth. You know, that's, that's what it's all about. We're the cat's meow and everybody else is second class citizens. He's got to take them from there to where we are today and in fact by the way finally it was settled when he had it in writing in ephesians chapter 2 and 3 and other places where he plainly says in christ there is neither jew nor greek it's a level playing field in christ there's no distinction anymore and you sit here and you think yeah everybody knows that well let me tell you getting there from where christ started was a big deal one of the things he uses by the way was the the speaking in foreign languages that happened at Pentecost. We'll see that as we go through the book. So keep that in mind. You see it here. Here Jesus is talking about what they're going to be doing. Receive the Holy Spirit. They're going to be witnesses. And right in the middle of it, what did they say? What was the question they asked? Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? <laughs> you see, they have this fixation. Now, please understand, I'm not bad-mouthing them. It's understandable. It, that's been the expectation ever since when they asked him that back in uh, matthew 24 and here he tells them again look he doesn't say no and he doesn't say it's going to be a long time he just says that's not for you to worry about little do they know uh there's going to be a long at least two thousand years here period before that happens and you need to realize while he's talking to them, while he's telling them these things, they don't really know what he's talking about. They don't realize the church where there's no distinction or any of that. It's going to be all new to them. So that when he says, you'll be witnesses me in Jerusalem, Judea, and when he says Samaria, what do you think they thought? <laughs> you know, I'll tell you, most likely... If I were among them, I would have said, he must be talking about him, not me. <laughs> and when he said the uttermost parts of the earth, they would probably think he must mean the Jews that are scattered out there. We're not going to Gentiles. Remember, that's where we are at right now. And Jesus does a marvelous work starting there and uh, building his church exactly the way he said he would. Okay, verse 9. 
Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? I love that question. This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. <clears throat> I, love, I had uh, some vertebrae few, so I can't quite do it as well. But you can just picture these guys, you know. You ever watched a balloon go up? Until it becomes a dot? And then nothing? And you think you've lost it, and then you kind of find it again, you know. And then it's, That's the idea, I mean... They saw him go up, but he went into a cloud, and he disappeared right there. And so it's like they want to see if, he wants to, if he's going to reappear or something, you know? I love it. And these two men, of course, are angels, obviously, you know, messengers from God. And they spoke exactly what God said to, to tell them. What an experience that would have been, huh? And it's so important, by the way, like the resurrection, that it was done in plain view. This is no small thing, Jesus, you know, just lifting up from the ground and disappearing into a cloud. Imagine if he said, okay, uh, you guys, that's the last lesson. Uh, starting tomorrow, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be around here anymore. I'm going to ascend into heaven. And they just don't see him anymore. They'd have trouble believing that, wouldn't they? So it's good that they're all standing there and they saw it. It's very clear. Yeah, we have more than one witness. He ascended. And I love... Uh, God's words through the angels here to us. It's an encouragement. You know, he's re they're, they're really saying two things. God is saying through them two things. First of all, what are you standing around here for? You know, he, he gave you something to do. Go back to Jerusalem and wait like he told you. But also, they reiterate the promise of the Lord Jesus back in John 15. He will return. He will come back. That's the blessed hope. Are you looking forward to that? Oh, man, am I ever looking forward to that? You know, Jesus predicted two, two big things that were going to happen. Number one, he, he predicted that he was going to die on a cross. He's done that. He wasn't lying. He's done it. And his suffering was beyond belief. We will never understand what he suffered on that cross. Praise God, it's over. Aren't you glad? Man, I am. Well, if he said that was going to happen, and that was bad, and he went through with it, now he says he's going to come back, and that's not painful. I'll promise you he's going to do that too. Just as surely as he died on the cross and rose again, man, he is coming back for those that know him and take us to himself that where he is, we may be also. So that's an encouragement there. Okay, uh, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem. Now they did what they're supposed to from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Count these, by the way. See how many you get. I'll start again. Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, Judas, the son of James. How many did you count? Who said 12? <laughs> there's 11 now you counted his father no no Alphaeus is not a disciple that's the father of uh, James there's 11 that's going to become important in a second of course we know who's missing it's Judas well they're all together it says these all continued with one accord in prayer 
in supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, <clears throat> and with his brothers. Two things <clears throat> to notice about verse 14. There's a theme that's begun here. It's repeated throughout the book of Acts. It's two key words. They continued with one accord. Unity. It's all over the epistles and it's all over the book of Acts. And it's so essential. How good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. Huh? Praise God. And it's, it's an essential uh, prerequisite for the blessing of God. Second, prayer. And the book of Acts is pervaded with the sweet fragrance of the prayers of God's saints. One accord and prayer. The other thing is, it says, uh, you might not even notice it when you read it, but it says at the end, after the mother, Mary, the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I wonder how many people here know that Jesus actually had brothers. Oh, somebody did raise your hand. Okay, well, good for you. Um, you know, the Catholic Church, one of their many false doctrines is that Mary was a perpetual virgin. They fly in the face of so many scriptures. Here's one of them. It says that Jesus had brothers. Back in the Gospels, the, uh, Mary came with his brothers to take them away. And they're not praying to Mary, notice. She's there like a believer, like everybody else. Okay. <clears throat> I bet you thought we weren't going to finish the chapter. We'll read it, and I just got a few comments, and then we'll close in prayer. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120. There's the number, 120. And said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. This is a quote from the Psalms. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that field is called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. Now back to the quote. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it and let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots and the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. I love this section. And I remember when I first read this, <clears throat> I was kind of underwhelmed. I don't know about you. <clears throat> Let's be honest. Where does God speak here? It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Here we got this long account of an idea of Peter's, it looks like, sandwiched between two great supernatural events, the ascension and the giving of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And it doesn't say, so the Lord told them to do this. And even when they pray, it doesn't... You know, do you expect like kind of at Belshazzar's feast, a finger to come out and write on the wall, Matthias, you know? But it's not like that at all. Isn't it interesting? 
I mean, you've got this book with guys being raised from the dead and the lame walking, people being released from prison miraculously by angels and earthquakes and who knows what else. And here are the disciples up in a room. Peter says, you know, I think we need to have a 12th guy. And they, are, they agree on that. Remember, they're, they're worth one accord. They pray. They cast lots. And then here's a guy, Matthias, whom we never hear about again, by the way. Although, now don't get me wrong. God is in this. God, God's not going to waste all this space in the Bible for no good reason. He's in this. And later, uh, he refers to them as the 12. So he honored that. You, you may read this and you say, why is this passage here? Well, I think I know why. I, I love it. Let me give you a, an illustration from my own experience. Back in the old days, when I was first an elder, we had our first instance of uh, church discipline. And it was very hard. Because when you, as an elder, have to make difficult decisions, you'd like to turn to the Bible and find it right there. You know, when this happens, this, you know, this is exactly what you do. Now, there are principles. Yeah, don't you know that. But too often, you're not sure. Like the disciples here, they could narrow it down to two guys. But beyond that, they didn't know what to do. And so they prayed about it. And there's no earthquake. There's no uh, voice from heaven. But they believe God answered that prayer. They prayed and believing God would answer it, they acted on it and went out and served God. That's the way it's supposed to be. And I think God inserted this here in this book of miracles and all kinds of spectacular stuff to remind us this is the way he works. He, he wants us just to trust him by faith. And pray for the elders because... Uh, they, they're doing that all the time, facing difficult situations, crying out to God. And then at a certain point, it's up to them to just say, okay, we prayed about it. We believe this is what God has said. And now we're going to do this. And it's up to us to support them 100% in that, believing that God honored that prayer. The verse that goes with this is in Matthew 18. And it's one of the most abused verses in the Bible. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And when you hear that applied, invariably, it's something like, what that verse means is, when I go out in the woods with my friend on Sunday, instead of being with the believers, and we pray, Jesus is right there with us. Have you ever heard like, something like that? You read, go read that verse and look at the context. No, what he's talking about at all. He's talking about the leaders in the church. And he's talking about church discipline. That's the subject. And that verse meant so much to me in that room that night when we were praying, crying out to God, what do we do? That verse just came alive. Because what, what he was saying there is, brethren, when you get there and you don't know what to do, you're not sure, that's great. You just call on me. And I promise you, I'm there with you. And I'll tell you what to do. You just trust me. You pray about it and you believe that I'm going to answer that prayer. Now, I'm not downplaying the, the, the fancy stuff, the, the pyrotechnics that's going to happen later in the book of Acts, but that's not God's typical way. He did, it, he, uh, did healings and he raised the dead and, and all that other stuff until, number one, Israel turned the church, turned the corner and we had the church in place, but more importantly, once we had this. When this was completed, 
then we return to the other way of doing things, which we have today. And as much as we'd like to have the voice from heaven and the earthquakes and so on, God says in his word, without faith, it is impossible to please him. And Jesus said, it's a wicked and perverse generation that asks for signs. He wants us, wants us just simply to trust him. So here we are, Calvary Bible Chapel. That's the way he wants us to operate, you know, praying to him, trusting him, believing him, and he'll do great things. Okay, well, let me ask you, how do you fit into all this? The disciples are ready for a great adventure. They're about to embark on working with Jesus as he builds his church. What's your goal? What's your ambition in life? <clears throat> I'm speaking to believers now. <clears throat> what do you want to do with your life? Think about it. What's most important to you? Now, I don't mean what do you tell me is important, most important to you. I mean, looking at your life, what would people say is most important to you based on your time and your energy? Making a name for yourself, accumulating your first million, having a good time. Something like that. Remember that section in 2 Timothy. Men will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money. Lovers of pleasure. Rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness. Be honest. Be careful. In fact, I asked you the wrong question. I should have said, what does the Lord Jesus want you to do with your life? And it's, I hate to tell you, it's, it, his pro top priority for you is not a career, it's not marriage, it's not money, it's not fun. It doesn't mean you don't do some of those things. It's just that his priority is still building his church. And that's what he wants his people to have as their first priority. Remember, you didn't choose yourself, he chose you. He said that. You didn't choose me, he said, I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go forth and bear much fruit. It says in 2 Corinthians, we are his ambassadors. And we already are. We don't choose to be. He made us that way. Let me, let me just challenge you. Lay aside your small ambition. There's nothing greater or more exciting than co-laboring with the Lord Jesus Christ and building his church. Whether it's sharing the gospel putting away chairs, discipling a brother or sister, whatever it is. Where is Christ's priority of building the church in your life? Really? In all the activities. You may be saying, I know. I, I know where you're coming from. Somebody's saying, but I'm nobody. I'm weak. I'm helpless. I have no self-confidence. Great. <laughs> then you're just the sort of person he's looking for. We just said that, didn't we? He doesn't want mighty people. He doesn't want smart people. He doesn't want rich people. He wants helpless weaklings. So when the work is done, people who look on have to say, boy, that must be the Lord because it's certainly not them. And they glorify God. Are you willing to be a nobody for Jesus? You know, I'll end with this. There's a wonderful passage later in the book of Acts. You got the seven sons of Sceva. They are wannabe exorcists but they're not christians and they go out and they say in the name of jesus i command you to come out of him they do that to a demon <laughs> i love the demon's quote he speaks through the man you know what he says he says jesus i know and paul i know but who are you <laughs> isn't that good listen to that that demon said paul i know 
Think about that. I, I, I want to be a nobody in this world, but man, I want to be a somebody for God, huh? Can you imagine being associated by the breath of a demon? Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know. Man, I'd love to have a demon say that about me. That's, that's the way to be, you know, known in the spiritual realm. Think about it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray this morning that you'll deliver us from trivial lives. Lord, we who name you as Lord and Savior, oh, may we take our lives and use it the wisest way possible by spending it on you. We ask it in your name. Amen.